meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we've been working through the narrative lectionary over the last few months, and that's given us some readings we're not used to hearing on that Ottoman church. And I think Esther is another one of those readings that we don't get an awful lot of. So I'm curious, just by a show of hands, how many of you have read the book of Esther before and know the story? No, that's pretty good, actually, pretty good. It's one of the fabulous stories in Scripture. It's one of those stories that's probably completely made up. Um, some are, and some aren't, but I think this one is a, a little piece of historical fiction. But it's pretty good historical fiction. So if you haven't read it, I commend it. It's a good story. The story is set during the Persian Empire. The Babylonians had come in and with a great lot of noise and fire and flash, they took over you know, what had been the Assyrian Empire, and they came in and they conquered Judah and Jerusalem, and they sent the people of God into exile. But they were, they were so full of their own bravado, their empire didn't last very long. As empires go in the ancient world, this is a pretty short-lived empire, and quickly the Persians came in and took over. And the Persians had a much more stable empire. And one of the reasons they had that stability was because they weren't as harsh with the people they subjugated as the Babylonians were. They were, as empires go, quite uh, gentle and generous with, their, uh, with the people groups that they had overtaken. And so the people of Jerusalem, who had gone into exile, were allowed to return home under the Persians. And some did. They went back to Jerusalem they rebuilt their temple, and they rebuilt a new life in their old ancestral homes. But some of the people stayed where they were. And so the book of Esther comes out of these, these people in the Jewish diaspora who stayed uh, where they were in the empire. And so this is set in the city of Susa, one of the, one of the capitals of the Persian Empire. And these Jewish people are building a new identity in a foreign land. Esther's a really great story, especially if you've got a soft spot for stories where evil men get their comeuppance. <laughs> so in King Ahasuerus' court, there's a man called Haman, and he's getting some power for himself. He's getting some influence with the king, uh, and he convinces the king, who, by the way, throughout the book, is portrayed as a complete idiot. The king is a, is a fool. Um, Haman convinces the king to make a law that everyone should bow down to Haman. So Haman's walking through the streets, the people are bowing, except for Mordecai. The Jew Mordecai refuses to bow down, and Haman can't handle this. He's got this grudge now with Mordecai. So he conspires to figure out how to get Mordecai killed. But that's not enough for Haman. He wants all of Mordecai's people, all of the Jewish people, to be killed too. And so he goes and convinces the king to pass a law that says on a certain day, throughout the empire, the people of Persia can kill any Jews they see. Well, in a delightful turn, in a great bit of poetic justice, Esther, who is the queen, who has concealed her Jewish identity 
gets close to the king and convinces him that no, Mordecai should be uh, actually honored. He's done a lot of good things for the king. Uh, and Haman should be killed. And the Jews should be allowed to defend themselves on that great day. And so, the Jews are given permission to defend themselves. Their revenge is swift and sweet, and they kill 75,000 of their enemies. <laughs> and then set up a yearly feast to commemorate this event and their freedom. If you set aside any ideas of what Scripture should be, or how Scripture should work, this is a really wonderful, entertaining, although not entirely unproblematic tale. The book of Esther is quite unusual within the collection of Scripture. God is not mentioned by name once, not once. And scholars disagree about whether God's activity behind the scenes is implied or not. Should we assume that God is in the background of the story, or should we just think that God's not up to anything at all? And so because of this, because there's no mention of God, because it's so strange, it took a very long time for Esther to be received as sacred scripture in both the Jewish and the Christian traditions. So this story was probably written about four or five hundred years before the birth of Jesus of Nazareth. And it takes a couple hundred years after that before the Jewish rabbis say, yeah, okay, this is, this is sacred scripture. We'll receive this as scripture. So that's six or seven hundred years where Esther's been out there and the people of God are saying, what do we do with this? Might be scripture, might not be. And it takes the church even longer. It takes uh, until about 300 years after Jesus for the church in the West to say, yeah, this is scripture. But in the East, in the Eastern Orthodox Church, it takes about seven or eight hundred years before they have consensus to say, okay, Esther is scripture. And then around the Reformation, uh, Martin Luther, great reformer, said, I wish Esther had never been written. Well, it's been suggested that the only reason this book makes the cut to get into scripture it is because it gives the founding narrative for the Feast of Purim, which is a springtime feast celebrating the deliverance of the Jewish people from the destruction of the hands of Haman. It's a feast of great revelry and a lot of drinking. <laughs> and though getting drunk is frowned upon by the tradition of the rest of the year, during the Feast of Purim, there's a great saying that you should get so drunk that you can't tell the difference between blessed be Mordecai and cursed be Haman. So naturally, this was a very popular festival. <laughs> and because it's so popular, scholars think maybe that's why Esther ends up being in, in the canon of sacred scripture, because it supports this festival, and no one wants to get rid of this festival. We need our, our uh, justification for having our spring uh, drink. It's a plausible explanation for the ultimate, if late, canonization of the book. Which serves as a good reminder that we can come to Scripture with all sorts of preconceived ideas about what it is and how it should work. You know, that it should be pious, that it should be understandable, that it should give us some spiritual wisdom that we can learn and discern and apply to our lives. And sometimes Scripture does that. 
But often it doesn't. It's messy. It's ancient and weird. Sometimes it baffles us. Sometimes it infuriates us. One part over here will completely disagree with another part over here. It's a collection that takes us a lot of work sometimes to mind what does it mean for us today? Which can be kind of fun and exciting. It doesn't give us easy answers, but it can speak to us in different ways and different times. So what does Esther say to us today? Well, we're here in the season of Advent. Advent is the season of preparation, waiting, being in touch with our deepest longings for the world as it should be. In the church, we haven't rushed to set up our Christmas trees or sing Christmas carols. We've got the church decked in purple, which is a, a color of penitence and preparation. We don't rush to Christmas, but we take time to prepare and reflect. We sit with the pain of the world, we sit with our own unfulfilled desires, and we wait on God to bring salvation in the form of healing and wholeness for our broken hearts and our broken world. In Advent, we wait. But waiting isn't an entirely passive thing. Something might be going on under the surface while we wait. The chapter we read from Esther is a turning point in the story. To this point, Esther has been a sort of passive character in the story. She just does what she's told. Some man in her life tells her what to do and she doesn't. And we don't even hear any words coming out of Esther's mouth until this story. Her response to Mordecai, anyone who approaches the king without being summoned can be put to death, and he hasn't called for me in 30 days. But by the end of this chapter, Esther's the one issuing the instructions. She's the one telling Mordecai what to do, and Mordecai goes and does it. There's a reversal of roles here. Gathering all the Jews in Susa, hold a fast on my behalf. I will go to the king, and if I perish, I perish. Where does this sudden courage come from? Why this change? Well, perhaps she had been in a season of waiting. Maybe God had been working in her, behind the scenes, preparing her for this moment. What is going on in us during times of waiting? My spiritual director, the Reverend Dr. Joyce Peasgood, often speaks of the waiting of Advent as a pregnant season, where God is growing something inside of us. I don't have any first-hand experience of pregnancy, but I have had a front row seat a couple of times, and I know that the waiting that's involved in pregnancy is not a passive waiting. An expectant mother is very active during that time making sure she gets good nutrition, going to the doctor for regular checkups, preparing the home, the nursery, preparing the family, going to birthing classes and doing breathing exercises. <laughs> Singing to the baby, talking to the baby, and especially during the first pregnancy, devouring a stack of literature this big on everything on many, many things. The mother doesn't cause the child to grow in her womb. It, it just does that. But she creates the conditions to nurture that growth, to support that growth. 
and to prepare for life on the other side of this birth. In the spiritual life, what might it mean to nurture the thing that God is growing inside of you? Well, nutrition, spiritual nutrition, meditating on scripture, maybe not meditating on Esther, <laughs> or Leviticus, <laughs> but some of the good stuff in the Gospels and the Psalms, chewing on it, meditating on it. Pay attention. An expectant mother is paying attention to what's going on inside of her. So daily reflection, come to the end of the day and reflect, where was God today? Where was God trying to get my attention today? <clears throat> having a checkup, like having a spiritual friend, someone you can talk to about what's going on in your soul, someone you can share these deep things with. And preparing for what's next, cultivating a a spiritual imagination for what God is doing, for what might be ahead. Imagining, expecting, what is God up to? This Advent season, as we wait, I ask, what is God growing inside of you? And how will you nurture it?